0: I'm going to be repeatedly wiping my brow this morning. It's hot. I don't know if it's hot in here or whether I got hot coming. I <laughs> know Well, if you can bear with me while I'll survive. I understand that, You've enjoyed the study on Revelation so great that you instructed the office not to order us materials for next quarter and we would just go through it again. (laughs) You see, we don't have any materials and today is our last lesson in the present (laughs) quarter. Hi! Every lesson you teach a Revelation. Shucks, now I don't get to teach revelation all over again. <laughs> <laughs> well, put it aside or somebody will care off. <laughs> You've heard the expression, a month of Sundays. Well, today's a month of Sundays. It's Memorial Sunday. It's Pentecost Sunday. It's, uh, <coughs> well, there was another <coughs> that I had in my mind. Alder's escape Sunday. Celebrating the heartwarming experience of John Wesley. So we've got a choice of celebrations today. All gate, Pentecost, or Memorial Day. But we'll take Revelation. Now let me say at the beginning, I began this quarter with a lot of discomfort as to what I could do with it, considering the fact that I know so little about the book and even after study, know so little about the book. (laughs) But our lesson writer was very generous. He chose those sections of the book of Revelation that had to do with celebration, overlooking all of the bad part that is depicted in such graphic ways as to the punishment that God levels upon his people. So it it has been a good experience because the lesson that has been chosen has been a celebration of good over evil, and we do come to the last section of our study. Appropriately, it is the last chapter, and the lesson writer says, in reality, it's kind of a reprise over what the writer has said over the entire quarter. John begins by identifying three voices that have been heard repeatedly throughout the book. The first voice he reveals is the voice of the angel. The angel is a spokesperson for many who have something to say throughout the book, but to John, it is an angel that is the interpreter. The next voice is the voice of Christ himself. Christ says to John, don't close the book. You have finished all that has been revealed to you. You have come to the end of the time of revelation, but leave the book open because there is yet more to come. He says something significant. He says, let those who are righteous continue in their Righteousness. Let those who are unrighteous continue in their unrighteousness. I will not coerce anyone. Now we need to realize that if we become a follower of Christ, it is on our own volition. God does not put us in a corner, He does not twist our arm. He simply reveals the opportunities and says, Come and accept. Jesus here at the end of all of this vast revelation says, let those who are unwilling to accept continue in their non-acceptance. Nobody is going to come and try to twist their arm at the very last, which is very important throughout all of our study of Christianity. It is the free will of the individual and the free will of the individual alone that brings about reconciliation to God. Too many people have talked about God drove me into a corner and I had to accept. God made me become a Christian through tragedy. God does not use tragedy to make people become Christians simply because it is totally meaningless if you accept Christ for any other reason than out of love and willingness. If I told my son, Brad, if you don't love me, I'm gonna quit paying your college expenses. And he could yell, oh, dad, I love you, I love you, I love you, but wouldn't change one thing with him. He might be able to get his college expenses, but that wouldn't be love. Love has to be genuinely expressed by one's own volition. And Jesus says this to John at the very last, There will be no coercion of those who are left. You have been given an opportunity. Now, as the book remains open for those who want to come, they may come, but no one will coerce them in doing that. Now, that doesn't mean that God stands at a distance by no means. One of the most revealing experiences of the pursuit of God is in the Hound of Heaven in which the writer says, in all of his years of being lost, of being on opium, of living in the among the dregs of London, he never escaped the sound of the hound of heaven at his heels in pursuit, which is to say that wherever he was, he could never get far away from the presence of God. But God did not force himself upon him. It was that at the moment I'm here. When you're ready, so am I. So John says, excuse me, Christ says to John, keep the book open because the end has not yet come and there's time yet for those who are willing to make the change. And then Jesus says, repeats as he did in the very beginning, I am the Alpha and the Omega." It is a reaffirmation of the fact that he is at the heart of everything that has been talked about, all of creation, all of the future, all of it is in the hands of God, in the hands of Christ. The same yesterday, the same today, the same tomorrow. We have not made a transition from one to another. It is the same from the very beginning until the very ending. And it will not be long until I come. He says, those who are willing to come will be those who wash their robes and they've come before me in white, clean robes. The figure of the robe is used throughout Revelation to depict what's on the inside. Only God can see what's on the inside. We can see what's on the outside. The figure of the robe revealing to everyone the nature of that individual person. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago how those who came wearing robes of good deeds, the good deeds were shown on the robes that they wore, and how there would be a distinction between those who wore the robes of good deeds and those who had done very little. And then Jesus says, the white robes are those who have been washed and are clean, who have accepted the gift of reconciliation. Those without the washed robes will stand on the outside. All of the gates of heaven are open to those who wear the white robes. Entry is automatic, but for those without the white robes must stand on the outside. And then a warning, which troubles me greatly, and I really don't know yet what John meant by putting this warning in. He says, anyone who takes away from what is written, anyone who edits this out, can expect far, far more travail in his life, and he will experience the anger of God with all the tribulations that goes with it. If you add to it, then the punishment will be added to you in the time to come. Leave it alone. Now of course we know that the book of Revelation, as holy a book as it might be, is no more holy than the other books of the Bible. In fact, the revelation of Christ in the world and our access to him is far more holy than the book that says in the aftermath if you responded this way or if you responded that way. But it is inserted by John declaring that one must not do anything with the book, not touch it in any way to edit out or to edit in. Now, I haven't edit anything out. I just went over it, remember that. I don't know what that does with Martin Luther because Martin Luther really cut up the book. Thomas Jefferson, supposedly being a deist, had a Bible, he was very religious, But he cut out of his Bible everything that he didn't agree with. So I can imagine what revelation looked like in his Bible. (laughs) Now, a lot of us do the same thing, but we just blindly pass over it. We hunt the things that we like, and then we affirm those things. (laughs) But John inserts as a warning, this is the revelation from God. One must not add. One must not subtract to it. And then he concludes the book by saying, I am ready to come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Now, I want to put in a few words here of my own having to do with the book of Revelation because I have, a, I have trouble with the book, and i will share that with you. I don't want the book to become troublesome for you just simply because I have expressed that has become troublesome for me. The thing that causes me to stay out of the book is I don't have a road map. I love to hike in the Smokies, but I have to know where I'm going. I've got to have a trail map so that I can know where I'm going to end up, where to turn, and where not to turn. If you go in the Smoky Mountains without a trail map, and you get off the trail that has been laid, you might expect to spend the next three or four years going around in circles trying to get out. <laughs> That's exactly what I would do in the book of Revelation because I don't have a road map. Incidentally, my first wife's father was head of the YMCA in Knoxville back before the park came in. He was a great outdoorsman. He and Harvey Broom and a couple of other Knoxvilleans went all over the Great Smokies before any trails were laid. And they laid out many of the trails that are used today. He knew how to get out. He never got lost because he knew how to get out. He, he had studied the man, the mountains, and he knew how to, at any moment, go wherever he wanted to go. Uh, one incident that he told, which speaks of, no, well, I don't know what word to use to describe him. This is what the, the event was. It was at Christmas time, and a group of them wanted to go to Mount Macon on Christmas, to experience the snow at Mount Leconte. There was no cabins there then. There were no trails up there then, except the trail that they had made on their own. There was business to be done at the YMCA and he couldn't leave when the others left. He said, I'll join you later. He got away from Knoxville at nine o'clock, drove to Gatlinburg, and there was that big looming black mountain on a winter's evening with feats of snow all around. And he started out alone going to Mount Leconte, got there about 4 o'clock in the morning, and those were, they said, are you out of your mind? Climbing this mountain at midnight, snow, he knew the mountains. He never got lost. I don't have that ability in Revelation. I have to depend on what others say, and I don't always agree with what their interpretation is because I know that they are floundering just as I am in the book so that there's a reason the main reason that I don't study it is because I don't have a roadmap I don't know how to get it to truth at it because there's an alternative it's either this or this it's either this or this and when you finally come to your terms with it what have you got There are no great expressions of faith and love and truth. It is simply a battle between good and evil. And I experience that every day within myself. I don't need to go to Revelation to experience a battle between good and evil. But the other reason that I'm very reluctant to get into the book of Revelation, I don't like the way that God is pictured in our writing today. If you don't do this, God will pour out his anger upon you and you will experience greater travail. When we read the book of Revelation, we see a God seated upon the throne that is unapproachable. You wonder why Jesus called him Father? Because he is totally unapproachable, sitting on the throne, all of the martyrs lay flat before him, all of the angels lie down flat before him, no one dares approach the throne on which God sits. God begins by looking out over the world, and he has seven seals that to been broken. With the breaking of each seal, then there's great devastation that comes upon the land. The four horsemen are loosed, and they carry with them great devastation wherever they go. They are filled with God's anger, God's punishment to the people. Then we're introduced to the seven angels with the seven trumpets. And every time that a trumpet is blown, there's a great natural disaster that comes upon the earth. Earthquakes, lakes, swat up the islands. It's the fury of all creation that is let loose as each of the horns were sounded. Then there are the seven bowls, the bowls that are filled with the anger of God that is poured out upon the people, the suffering of the people at the... Uh, pouring out of the bowls that are held by the angels, and then a beast is loose, brought up out of the waters, and that beast devours, and that beast works against God in trying to take away the hearts of the people. Now, those who take the book of Revelation, literally, have a beast on their hands, and they've got to deal with that beast. Those who take it figuratively say that the beast represents Rome and all of the ills that are associated with Rome. Whichever it is, it doesn't matter. It is the revelation of a God in an entirely different stance in which I want to see God. I'm afraid of that kind of God. What if he turns on me? What if he changes his mind and says, I'm sorry that I was lenient to you. I think I'll make... Make you suffer for all of the wrongs you've done after all. Because God is continually showing different sides of himself, most of which are in anger and retribution. Now, Jesus said, God is a father standing on a hillside, reaching out to the son that's lost. Not punishing him. Not saying if you'll mend your ways, you can come home. All you need to do is to want to come. And i'm here waiting for you jesus said when you see me you've seen the father and jesus said let the little children come to me and don't forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven jesus had compassion upon people who were living in sin and he healed them of their illnesses and begged them to sin no more jesus looked out over the city of jerusalem and he saw all of the wickedness that was there this was the beast of the Middle East the Romans occupying Jerusalem and he saw all of the wrongs that were going there and instead of unleashing the bowls blowing the trumpets tearing open the seals he stopped and wept he looked into the hearts of them all and he felt their pain and he felt their suffering and he wept oh if only you had listened You'll lose your city. It will be destroyed, but it did not have to be. And he cried because they wouldn't listen. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I have prepared that place for you, I'll come and I'll bring you myself to the place where we will spend eternity together. Which God do you love? That's why I don't like the book of Revelation. I don't like that kind of a God, it scares me. I like a God that is loving, who wants peace, not battles, who wants reconciliation, not alienation, who doesn't want to punish you if you refuse to do what he asks you to do. Instead of punishing, he weeps. Now here's the book of Revelation. This is the final lesson and you've got questions and answers galore because we've got a few minutes for you to Why do you think uh, the council decided to include this book when they excluded so many more? How many families... I don't know. I don't know and uh, of course it was by consensus. Many objected as so others chose. and uh, John Wesley wasn't fond of the book although he found many things in the book that was Encouraging, as I said to you before, Martin Luther put it as an appendix when he translated at the time of the Reformation, taking the book out of Latin into the language of the people. He didn't want them to read Revelation. And he finally put it in as, an uh, and of course, biblical scholars throughout the centuries have wrestled with the book as to its value. And uh, so I, I just don't know. Of course, it is a Particular type of literature, it's unlike anything else in the New Testament. The nearest thing to it in the Old Testament is Ezekiel and Daniel. And uh, it is a type of literature that doesn't say things the way they are, but cloaks it in mystery. And if you don't understand it, I don't really know what the value there is in it. If my wife were to say, I have feelings for you, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. (laughs) I'd have to look at her actions to find out. Well, is it sort of a combination of good, the evil, and the bad or something, uh, revelations? uh, Well, we know that all of time is a battle between good and evil. In every person, there's a battle between good and evil. Good and evil exists, and in time, when the end time comes, we are told that evil will be destroyed. I have an interesting concept of evil, and that is... Evil is the absence of good. When you're good, there is no evil. When you're evil, there is no good, in the terms in which the battle between the two are concerned. And when all becomes good, in God's place prepared for us, there's no evil because there's no one to bring it there. Because evil has to be in the heart of the one who is evil himself. And it's not sort of all comes together at all. It's not. Because we are yet to become perfect. John Wesley says, seek perfection. He didn't say, be perfect. at a snap of a finger. I wish I could. I would to do that, and all of a sudden I'm perfect. I struggle. You struggle because our temptations are all around us, because there are evil forces that we contend with. But when we love God, we want good, and the Holy Spirit allows us to stand up against evil and that we don't sin as those who are imprisoned in other places because they've chosen that kind of life. But uh, there is good and evil. But if there's evil in heaven, it's not heaven, of course. And we are reassured by Jesus and all the others that when the time comes, then there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no evil, there's no mosquitoes, there's no snakes, there's no checkers. But, uh, uh, Tim Gibson's dog will be there. (laughs) He he asked me to make arrangements for that. Bath, a little bit away from Revelation, what's the the true definition of Pentecost? Well, Pentecost was a celebration of the Jews. It was one of their holy days. And... uh, it happened on the day of Pentecost when the Jews were celebrating it, that the Holy Spirit came upon the Christians, and we just adopted the name Pentecost for the Christian experience, but the name itself is a Jewish festival. Is that widely celebrated in all denominations? As far as I know. So we had somebody on the trip here ask us, two or three years, and he said, Pentecost already gone by, and I don't know They said, Well. That's been one of my criticisms of the church calendar all of my life. We celebrate Christmas. Christ has come. We celebrate Easter. Christ has risen. Pentecost comes, and that is the bringing of us into what Christ accomplished. It is the birth of grace, the birth of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we ignore it. This is what never happened. We talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but we rarely talk about the Holy Spirit coming into the lives of the people through grace from Christ's death at Pentecost. So when you say, do all celebrate, not overtly, as they should, it ought to be a great celebration. When I first began in the ministry, one of the biggest celebrations of the year was Reformation Sunday. In cities, they would have great rallies and all the churches would come and celebrate Reformation. Now, there's no celebration of Reformation. It's just kind of settled down into the ordinary. Yes, someone. I don't know much about Revelation either, but it seemed to me like I have read that John was trying to use sort of code words and he didn't want to say that Rome is uh, the evil, but he used these other figures of speech and Babylon and all of that. Do you? Uh, Oh, yes. Oh, that, that's at the very heart of the study. And you know what I think? I know you won't know what I think, you would have asked. It's a cop-out. Why would the people living then know what these things represented any more than we do today? Unless there was a manual that they passed out with it to interpret it. I think that everybody has been perplexed and to have an answer we just kind of said well it's all in code the people then knew what he was saying we can't break the code so that we don't know what they were saying. I don't buy that for a minute. And yet that's the major interpretation from those who don't take it literally. Personally I don't think it ought to be in the Bible because it's troublesome. The Bible itself is a revelation. But the the book of Revelation is a book of mystery. And don't you dare take anything away from it. And don't you dare put anything in it, which gives it a a kind of witchcraft effect. Yes, ma'am. You know the fundamentalist religions, or they can go literally and say this represented that. But how do you feel mainstream about other uh, ministers and revelations? Similar to your feelings, too. Then the Methodist Church is a behemoth. It's everything. You have the most fundamentalist preachers who believe every word of the Bible was honed by God and don't you dare take it out. More fundamental than the most fundamental. You have others who are very liberal. And to give you kind of an example of that, and I've given it to this class before, and I I hope you're not saying, well, there he goes on that one again. But it comes out of seminary when I had a professor from India, Mohammed Shah. Ebenezer Muhammad Shah, a brilliant man from India, who is extremely fundamentalist. He said that Mahatma Gandhi was in hell because he wasn't a Christian. And yet he said Mahatma Gandhi was the greatest man who ever lived next to Jesus Christ. I had a Baptist under whom I studied the message of Jesus. He was on loan from the University of Chicago, heading the International Greek New Testament project on the campus of Emory University, who said, if the grave was empty on Easter morning, grave robbers had been there the night before. Now you can't get more extreme than those two. And let me tell you why I love Emory University. I'm I'm one to. any of you going to go to seminary? Wayne won't like this because Wayne didn't go to Emory. <laughs> when I was choosing a seminary to- <laughs> When I was choosing a seminary uh, Max Stokes who later became a bishop was uh, assistant dean at Candler School of Theology, and he came to Church Street where I was associate. I was associate pastor at Church Street before I went to seminary, and uh, he came for Holy Week services, and I was getting ready to go to seminary, and I asked him what he would suggest in my choosing a seminary. He attended Boston University, which is the first seminary established in America by any denomination. He studied at Uh, Duke University. He was on the faculty at Drew and on the faculty at uh, Northwestern Garrett School. So he he knew firsthand of all. He was now Vice Dean at Emory. He said any of these schools I have named you'll come out with its brand on you because they have a position, a tradition that they will imprint upon you. You'll come out liberal, you'll come out Uh, fundamentalist you'll come out moderate whatever but he said Emory gives you everything they expose you from one extreme to the other so that you can make the choice for yourself and I have always said that every person's faith has to be hammered out by that individual and not on the say-so of somebody else and that's the way I approach my reading of Scripture the way I approach prayer is revealed to me you know I want to know myself God gave me two things that may be different from most people. I have a logical mind and I have a desire for understanding that anything has to be reasonable. I cannot find anything in the Bible that is unreasonable unless you limit yourself by trying to impose upon something that's not there. If I can't make it logical, I can't teach it. That's why I can't get into Revelation. It's not logical to me, so how can I teach you something that's not logical to me? You can be assured that everything I say to you has ground throughout in my mind, and I can accept it before I can, can say it. Yes? And don't scholars general, generally agree that the same John that wrote the book of Revelation is the John that wrote the book of John? And if The book of John is a clear, logical book of of love. Right, and John, is he's the apostle of love. Little children love one another. Little children love one another were his dying words. Uh, No, scholars don't agree that it was the same John. One is that John wrote refined Greek in the gospel and the worst Greek in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not a student of Greek, so I can't say that because I've studied it, but this is, biblical scholars say that it is the worst Greek of any book. Yes? May I say a good word for Garrett? Yes. (laughs) By all means. Well, you guys, having met my wife there, they were, uh, at that point, it was a great firm and everything was going on, and we were at the same stage that you were talking about. Yes. Was a chance to chew. Now, in Bishop Stokes' defense, he didn't say this is the only seminary. He just says Duke is a conservative seminary. Southern Methodist is a conservative seminary. Vanderbilt is a liberal seminary. Uh, True University is a liberal seminary. But, Garrett, uh, a lot of people are going to Asbury Seminary now, although it is not a seminary of the Methodist Church, because it is very, very conservative. And so ministers coming out of Asbury uh, are more of the conservative end. One of my friends in seminary is chancellor of the school, so I'm not going to say anything bad about it. It's just simply to say we have seminaries for every taste. And ministers should be appointed by those tastes. I was appointed to a charismatic church. (laughs) Those poor people. (laughs) I've taken up time that I should uh, we need to get other concerns before us no more revelation we've got our books <gasps>